This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-WY-Giving. All right, chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Now, I do want to backtrack a little bit just to, now that I've already started, just to pick up our context. Let me backtrack a little bit into chapter 3, from verse 13, and I'll just read all the way through to the end of the chapter. And who is he that will harm you? This is the question that Peter asks. Who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord, your, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And then I'll pick up from verse 18 here in just a moment. You can summarize this teaching with that. It's better to suffer for doing right than it is to suffer for doing wrong. That's something we could probably all agree with. And it's all within the greater context of being members of the body of Christ, being new creatures in Christ, being born again. We're no longer living the old life. And that's going to come back uh, again in, in chapter 4 here in a minute. But we're no longer the old us. We're no longer the you that you used to be before you believed on the Lord Jesus and accepted him as Lord and Savior, Savior and Lord. It's got to be both or he's neither. We're new now. And so because of that, he says not to worry about it. If you suffer for doing right, don't think that it's strange. Don't think that it's weird. It's good. It is certainly better to suffer for doing the right thing. I know we brought up that old axiom last week. No good deed goes unpunished. We talked about that, joked about it a little bit. Well, if you must suffer for doing something, let it be for doing the right thing rather than doing the wrong thing. Because when you do the wrong thing, see, here's the thing. As a Christian, when you do the wrong thing, then one, you're suffering because you did wrong, and nobody enjoys that, nobody in their right mind anyway, but you're also bringing shame to the body of Christ. That's why he tells us, you know, not to let any of us suffer as evildoers. It doesn't mean to be evildoers and avoid the suffering for it. It's just, it's the admonition so that we don't do evil. And there's much of that throughout the New Testament. There's really, there's no avoiding it unless you cut huge portions of it out. We're beyond that now. And we're expected to be beyond that now. I don't mean that we're beyond the temptation to it at times, depending on a person and their particular weakness or whatever it is that God's still working with them about. 
but we're supposed to be beyond that kind of life anymore. So launching off of verse 17 here, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, and once, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, I know I read through it fast, but there's a sticky little verse that's in there that throws a lot of people. And it ties into a verse that, uh, all, that he also brings up here in chapter 4 that has thrown a lot of people for a loop and has created, a, has, created the wrong, has created the wrong notion in people's minds that when Christ died, he went and preached to the dead that were in hell or that were in Abraham's bosom. And it's a, it's a surprisingly common misconception of the scriptures, and so we're going to do our dead level best to iron that out. But even in our efforts to iron that out, those particular verses are not the main point that Peter's talking about in these two chapters. So let's take it now from chapter one or chapter four, verse one. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men but to the will of God. Here's that recurring admonition to we are new creatures now. Now that we're in Christ, we are no longer to live the rest of our lives or the rest of our time in the flesh, because certainly we live in the flesh in that we're all still in these bodies, right? We haven't escaped from these things yet. That's coming. And even then, it's not going to be an escape so much as a transformation. Amen? What's he saying here? Verse 2, they should no longer live the, live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men. So yes, we still live in a body of flesh, but we're no longer to live it to the lusts of men, pursuing the lusts of men or the lusts of our former life, the priorities of our former life that were displeasing to God. We don't live that life anymore. And I don't know what particular lives were lived among some of us, in, in, in our old life before we came to Christ, maybe you were the partier. Maybe you were the one that, that blew your whole paycheck every Friday night on, on booze and hookers and blow or whatever they want to call it. I mean, cocaine. Whatever they might be. We don't live that life anymore. We're not in the party scene anymore. We're not drinking our paycheck anymore. We're not, we're not going from bed to bed to bed uh, with strange companions, so to speak. We're not doing those things anymore. We're not part of that life any longer. So he says that, that he should no longer, speaking of the believer, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. To the will of God. That's what we should be oriented towards now. And as believers, I believe we are oriented towards that now. But the admonition is a good one for us to be reminded of and to study again, because... 
we can find ourselves being tempted to the flesh, being tempted to go back to some of the older habits or even some of the old pastimes that were displeasing to God. Again, not condemning pastimes, only condemning the pastimes that are displeasing to God. You understand that I try to be very precise with my language or you can really mess things up. Verse 3, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Now the sentence ends there, so I want to park there for a second. All of this is simply reinforcing what we already said. We don't live that life any longer. Let's look at it again. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. That's the way we used to live. When we walked, past tense, we don't do it anymore. When we walked in lasciviousness. Ooh, what's that word? It's a, actually, very, there's very few occurrences of that word in Scripture. Lasciviousness. Lasciviousness speaks of acting, behaving, speaking, dressing, in any way conducting oneself in a way that is intended to inspire or entice sexual desire in somebody else. So it is usually perpetrated, in the, especially in the modern age, but also in, in, in ages past, it is usually perpetrated in the way that people dress especially women, but not exclusively women. There are a lot of men that do it too. And we're seeing weirder versions of that as things get more and more confused in our country thanks to the lusts of the flesh and, 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 and all these other, like, like abominations that are being foisted upon us by people of reprobate minds. But that's what lasciviousness is, to dress in a way that's intended to inspire lust, to act in a way that's designed or intended to inspire lust, to speak in a way to behave in a way that does that. And I used to live in Florida, so I can speak with some authority on this matter. Okay? People do it all the time. And as a believer, we ought, when we come across something like this, we read Galatians chapter 5, and we're reading 1 Peter chapter 4, and we come across this, we ought to think, am I doing that at all? In the things that I have, that I wear, or in the things that I do, or in the things that I say, am I, am I in any way acting out lasciviousness in my life because the last thing I want to do, the last thing I want to do is cause somebody else to stumble. Now, here's where the temptations diverge a little bit, but they're still related, okay? Among men, the temptation is to lust after people. Among women, the temptation is to be lusted after because, I mean, look at the entire beauty industry. Look at what it's built on. Look at the, the scads and scads of money that get that poured into it like mad uh, by people that are trying so hard to remain sexually marketable, at least in their appearance. I mean, let's be honest. You see it everywhere you go. There's some men that do that also, but but generally that's where those two temptations kind of, they, they divide, but they then complement one another. You know, a woman wants to be attractive, and there's nothing wrong with that because that's the way that she was made, because men are visually attracted people. We've talked about that before in different studies. Then this first thing that we tend to notice about a woman is, is she pretty? Is she hot? Is she this? Is she that? Is she ugly as a mud fence? You know, because there's that too. Or is she somewhere in between? 
Where is she on that one to ten scale of hotness that we also joke about? It coincides nicely with the one to ten scale of crazy. A lot of times, the hotter they are, the crazy they are. And a lot of times, a lot of this gets heaped primarily on the shoulders of, the, of women too. But it also applies to men. We don't want to cause our brother in Christ or our sister in Christ to stumble. We don't want to cause our neighbor who is outside of the faith. We don't want to cause them to stumble. We don't want to bring shame to the body of Christ or shame to the gospel of Jesus Christ by being like this. Because let me tell you what kind of groups are willingly like this. You find this a lot of times in certain cults because they use that as a recruiting tactic. It's bait. There are groups that do that. They put their pretty girls out there to try to get men's attention and lure them into the cult. But there are groups that do that. They put their pretty girls out there to, to lure men. And it's a very carnal, carnal tactic. If the truth isn't attractive, then someone's got the wrong appetite to begin with. But we don't want to use carnal tactics like that. We don't want to live in lasciviousness. And it's not always the things that are extreme, like, you know, a miniskirt that comes up to here or whatever. Sometimes it's things that are far more uh, benign. And it's just, it, it's good for our awareness so that we know, so that we can not walk in lasciviousness, so that we can demonstrate love for our neighbor and love for our brother and love for our sister. And it goes both ways. There are things that men wear that women find just very distracting. It's not appropriate at all. It's like have some bagginess in those trousers. You know, not everybody wants to see what you got going on. Please. Now, this is Bible study. We can get down, down to details. You just, you want to be mindful of it because we want to be careful. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, which go hand in hand with lasciviousness, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. And, and if you'll notice, all of these things, though they are not the same thing, they all go together. Because it's in revelings and banquetings, which is sort of an antiquated term, it's talking about partyings, feasts and things like that, which ties into what you mentioned, orgies. That was a frequent thing that went along with that too. And so among among unbelievers, especially in heathen populations, all of these things would go together. And even in, even in America to this day, sometimes they still go together. Sexual immorality and lasciviousness all manifests at these great big parties and bashes that people have. That's why nightclubs are a thing. It's why they make a lot of money. It's why they are what they are and they do what they do. And then ultimately he mentions this abominable idolatries. Well, that was also roped into those practices as well. So they get together for some great big banquet. The women are dressed to the nines to sexually attract the men that are around them. The men are doing the same thing to sexually attract the women that are around them. The booze is flowing like mad. People are eating and drinking and making merry. And then out comes the golden calf, the image of Ashtaroth, the image of Molech, the image of whatever false god it was that they were uh, worshiping. And it, they all just sort of converged one upon the other. And so they related they related one to another. All of this, Peter, in his letter, is saying, that's in our past. And so it should not be in our present, let alone in our future. Those are the things we used to do when we were ungodly, when we walked in lasciviousness and lust and excess of wine, all these other things that he lists. Verse 4, he continues in the same sentence, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, 
speaking evil of you. What's that mean? Well, the people you used to run with, you don't run with anymore, and they think you're weird. It's like, man, you used to be fun. We, all, we used to go hang out and drink and get plastered on Saturday night. Now all you want to do is stay home and read your Bible. It's real, isn't it? It's real because there's been a change in you. And so they think that it's strange that you run not to say, to use Peter's language, wherein they think it's strange that you run not to the same, with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. And so then now they talk to all their friends about it. It's like, yeah, that, this person used to be cool. Now they're not cool anymore. They're no fun anymore. They're boring. And they're always going to church. Well, good. We ought to be. He says, where they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now that's that other verse that gets sticky because people misunderstand it. And they think it's a reference to Jesus preaching to people that died. He's, well, he's gone and preached to the spirits in the underworld or something like that. Well, we're going to try to iron that out because that is, not, that is not at all what that means. Because let me ask you this question. What good would it do for Jesus to preach to the souls of the lost that are in hell? What good would it do? What in the world would it accomplish? They're dead. They're gone. All of their final decisions have been have been sealed in eternity. It's a lot. It's a lot like ceramics. You can carve it. You can shape the clay when it's wet, right? Because that's when it's malleable. You can work it. You can fashion it. You can do something with it. And even when it dries, you can still work with it. But you have to use completely different techniques. You're carving it like almost like stone, although it's a whole lot softer. It's like chalk more than anything else. Um, but once you put that thing in the kiln, you set it inside that blast furnace, it's done. Well, what happens? Well, the intensity, I mean, what's clay? It's basically pulverized stone. But once you set that clay inside the kiln and it gets fired at that intense heat, all those stone particles within it, they fuse together and it becomes not just dry and hard, but it becomes more like a rock. And at that point, you either use it or you smash it. There's no more reshaping that's going to be done. It's over. You know that that part of it is do, is over and done with. It's the same way with humankind at death. When we die, that's it. There's no more shaping by the hand of God. There's no more shaping by the circumstances of life. There's no more choices to make. They've all been made at that time. So, for someone to take this or its corresponding verse in the previous chapter. Uh, to, where he talks about went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, etc. To think that that's a reference to Jesus going and preaching to the souls of the dead really doesn't make any sense at all. Because preaching is done with an expectation or a hope that people will act rightly upon it. There's no action to be taken for those that have died lost. And so there are no second chances. Not after death. It's done. And there's, there's other verses that allude and support that, where Solomon says, where the tree falls, there it remains. 
and, and other things. Likewise, we read over in Hebrews how he says, it's appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment. So we gather all of this from Scripture that there's no second chance, there's, there's, there's no more chances for the dead. So, all right, we've ironed out what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean then? Well, verse 6, For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. Well, what's that mean? Those that were alive and have now died. The gospel was preached to them while they were still alive. And now are they dead? Now, I did some research into this because I know the present tense English in it is, is a bit, I don't want to say misleading, but it can be confusing. As, as much promotion as I give to taking the scripture at face value, sometimes you find it at face value and it seems to say something that it's not saying. This is one of those cases, one of those comparatively few cases. The gospel is only preached to the living. There's no point in preaching it to the dead. And so there's several different schools of thought, and I saw several different examples while researching it. Oh, well, he meant that it, that it was preached unto the patriarchs that were in Abraham's bosom, or it was preached unto the Old Testament saints. Well, yes, while they were alive, there was a type of gospel that they had. It wasn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hadn't come yet. But it speaks that, what it speaks of is that it was preached to people who were alive and are now dead. It doesn't mean that he went and preached to people that have already died. Well, Paul said something about it. Yes, he mentioned that there were people that do that. He was not condoning the process. He wasn't putting a stamp of approval on the process. So baptism for the dead is not biblical. It doesn't do any good. He can't get baptized for somebody else anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, baptism is... this. It's for the person being baptized. Verse 7, next paragraph. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. Here we are. We're coming back to that sobriety thing again. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude, the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion, forever and ever. Amen. That's the whole paragraph there, verses 7 through 11. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory. It reminds us the end of all things are at hand. We're in the last chapter of this thing before God starts the process of wrapping it all up, not to plunge into old end times prophecies and the order of future events. That's for another study. But he reminds us even 2,000 years ago, we were in the last days. It's not just that we're in the last days now. We've been in the last days for two millennia. Jesus has made that clear, and the apostles make that clear. Peter reminds us, the end of all things is the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And that so many drunks and addicts are terrified of. Sober means far more than just not being drunk. It means far more than just uh, not being under the, the chemical influence of something. It speaks of something broader than that. It does include that, but it speaks of something broader than that. 
being serious-minded when it's time to be serious-minded and handling serious things seriously, handling them with reverence or handling, handling them with due gravity. And what we mean by that is things like the Word of God, eternal truths that direct us how we should live, what we should do, what we should not do. I'll remember all the verses prior to this in chapter 4 are, hey, this was your old life. And we don't do that anymore. Not just because it's not just because it was wrong, but because it's not conducive to having a sober mind. Because when you got somebody's knocking back bottle after bottle or shooting up into their vein or doing whatever it is that they're doing that wrecks their judgment and impairs their ability to think, to reason, to recognize the difference between right and wrong, you ever wonder why people drink? You ever wonder why it's such a thing? And why? I mean, establishments exist purely for that. I'm not turning this just onto an anti-booze rant, so, so please don't think. This isn't a soapbox, necessarily, okay? But you look at all the things that, you look at all the things that tie in with it, and the places that sell it, and the places where people go to drink this stuff. You go into a place like that, whether it's that, whether it's the Green Door, whether it's uh, the Crown Bar, whether it's, you know, whatever these fine drinking establishments that they have here in the great city of Cheyenne, what happens in those places? <coughs> People getting snockered. Why? So they can dull their senses, forget their troubles, lower their inhibitions, and find somebody to go spend the night. And it's, it's with some people, it's self-medicating, but you see how it all ties in together. And it's exactly what Peter's describing here in this chapter. He says, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, they all go hand in hand together. And that's why Christians, if nothing else, just be mindful of our testimony. We don't go to such, we ought not to. Just because somebody seeing you there is going to think, I thought that fellow was a Christian. What are they doing in there? Like, well, I only had a, only had a water with lime. Uh-huh, sure. And maybe you did. But to, all, to, to the eyes of everybody around you, it looked like you were doing something else. And so it creates the appearance of evil. It's just not good. So we were in that life. Now we're not. And so he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be sober, therefore. Watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity. That speaks of love. Love among yourselves. For love, charity shall cover the multitude of sins. So what's he telling us to do? Brothers, sisters, the end is near. So what's that mean? It's a whole lot closer than it was even 2,000 years ago. And if the Lord tarries another 1,000 years, the end is still near. And, yet, and that, that, this old life that he describes in, in the first paragraph of chapter 4, it's done. We're not living that anymore. We're not living in that anymore. We're not living that life anymore. We're not living like that anymore. We're not a part of that scene anymore. Let's be a part of this scene. Sobriety of mind. Watching. Praying. Being mindful of the serious business of eternity going on all around us. Being mindful of the more important things that are all around us. The sober few. If that trumpet could sound at any time. That trumpet could sound at any time and we could be in the moment in the twinkling of an eye changed from mortal to immortality. So let's be sober and let's love one another with the perfect, pure 
love of Christ. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.